Hi, I'm Paula, and this is the Contemplative Revolution podcast brought to you by WCCM. In this episode, you're going to listen to the first talk of the series A Living Hope, The Shape of Christian Virtue by Reverend Sarah Bachelard. This is part of the Contemplative Path Through the Crisis program by WCCM. Well, as Lawrence mentioned, I've, I've called this series of reflections A Living Hope, The Shape of Christian Virtue. And since virtue is a somewhat daunting topic and Christian virtue even more so, I thought I'd begin by saying something about what's led me to this theme. The initial impetus came from the church calendar. We've just celebrated Easter, as you know, and among the readings set for these next six weeks are passages from the first letter of Peter. In this letter, the author is reminding his readers that they have received what he calls a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because of this, they themselves are being called to a new quality of life. According to 1 Peter, there is a direct relationship between what's happened to Jesus and what is now newly possible for his disciples in their relationship to their sufferings, in their relationship with others and with their own future. Those to whom this letter is addressed are scattered around Asia Minor in small and vulnerable communities. And they're exhorted to commit themselves to holy living in the midst of sometimes difficult and unconducive circumstances. And so what this means seemed to me worth exploring. It seems worth exploring particularly in the context of the world's current crisis, which is raising plenty of questions about how we're to live well, both now and into the future. As we gather, hundreds of thousands of people are ill with the COVID-19 virus, and thousands upon thousands of families have lost, have lost loved ones. Health workers and health systems are overwhelmed in many places. Governments and communities struggle to discern the way forward. And millions have lost work and fear for their future. These are terrible events. And for those at the front line, for those who are ill or grieving or hungry or responsible for communities, the suffering and confusion wrought by the pandemic are still very much upon us. At the same time, we are already beginning to reflect on the meaning of this crisis and on what might emerge from it. Many commentators are suggesting that this worldwide pandemic, this enforced disruption of the status quo, offers an opportunity to think afresh about the way we live. And despite a rhetoric in some quarters about returning to normal as soon as possible, many of us have a deep yearning that this in fact doesn't happen. 
Of course, there are things we all hope will be restored to us. Freedom to gather with friends and family and as communities. The sharing of meals and concerts, beaches and parks. Freedom of movement. Participating in the public life of our villages, towns and cities and so on. But what we don't want, or what I don't want, is simply to reinstate a whole bunch of things that weren't okay about our former way of life. Things that were unjust or unsustainable or simply illusory. Like the structural injustices and pointless consumerism on which our economic system is built with its unthinking exploitation of the natural world. In the light of this crisis, not only are we seeing the impact of these features of our old life more clearly, we're also realizing that things really could be otherwise, that we could choose a more abundant and shared flourishing. In Australia, for example, it's been the case for years that the unemployment benefit has been grossly inadequate, condemning those without work to lives of grinding poverty, bureaucratic micromanagement, and the perennial risk of homelessness. But now that a vastly greater percentage of the population finds itself without work, suddenly the benefit has more than doubled. Now that almost anyone could find themselves reliant on its support, our society will no longer tolerate what it has previously inflicted on those implicitly deemed the undeserving poor. Similarly, now that there's a general public health interest in people not being homeless and so unable to self-isolate, all of a sudden housing and accommodation is miraculously being found for those without. From an earlier rhetoric about our country not being able to afford to relate humanely to its most vulnerable residents, it is now glaringly obvious that these were simply choices we were making. Now that we know what it's like to choose otherwise, do we really just want to snap back to the way things were? In relation to the natural world too, we're having the lived experience of how different choices could be made and would make all the difference. How pollution levels could dramatically alter if we decided it mattered enough. How life could be restored to the oceans and soils if we chose to make that a priority. How carbon emissions could drop exponentially and many of our global systems be re-founded on clean energy. I know there are complexities in all this. Legitimate questions of economic management, public policy, balancing competing interests and the like. There are always limits to be reckoned with and negotiated. My point is simply that a crisis such as the one we're in offers a glimpse, and not just in theory, but in practice, of what a richer commitment to the mutuality of flourishing 
might call forth in our social systems, our environmental practices, our whole way of life. As Lawrence said, there's this sudden realisation of a new unity, a new commonality. And I take it for granted that this richer commitment to genuinely mutual flourishing among human beings and between human beings and the rest of creation is more like the life God would have us share. It's more in line with what one Peter would consider holy living. So this series is about our formation as people who can respond to this crisis in a godly way. People who can undergo its suffering and commit to the possibilities that are glimpsed in its wake. It's about how we become more capable of participating in the emergence of what economist Charles Eisenstein has called the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. What are the virtues, the practices, the habits of being that will enable new life to be born from this crisis? And how are we nourished and sustained in them? Well, this is the point then at which I need to say a little more about the phrase Christian virtue. Obviously enough, concern for people's character and values, questions about virtue and the good life are not exclusive to Christianity. From Socrates to Plato to Aristotle and beyond, to the great schools of Hinduism and Buddhism, the ulamas and Sufis of Islam, the centuries of Jewish rabbinic discussion, as well as the world's indigenous and humanistic traditions, communities have cared about what's good and true and have sought to form people to live well. There is much that is shared in this wisdom of humankind as well as much we can learn from each other. It is, however, a striking feature of the New Testament that it claims a particular quality of virtue has become newly visible and available to people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. At first, it's not so easy to see how this is so. After all, how is this event supposed to have changed the possibilities of our own humanity, the possibilities for being? Well, in a nutshell, it's a dangerous thing, but in a nutshell, here's how the understanding goes. Jesus was one who lived his life wholly entrusted to God, perfectly responsive, and obedient. In this spirit, he entered willingly into the maelstrom of human violence and was given up to death. He consciously embraced our worst, refusing to return evil for evil, thereby in some mysterious way breaking its power. 
By raising him from death, God vindicated Jesus and his way. His return to his disciples in forgiveness and peace made real for them the love of God. In the light of the resurrection, they come to know beyond all doubt that God is radically and unconditionally for humanity. God seeks our good no matter what we do. And this is how the first disciples came to proclaim with astonished gratitude that the whole point of Jesus' life, culminating in his death and resurrection, was to save us from our compulsion to secure our lives for ourselves, to make ourselves matter or make ourselves good. These are compulsions which so readily lead us into rivalry with one another, into grasping and self-defendedness and ultimately violence. The Christian proclamation is that we don't have to do that anymore because in and through the love of God, our significance, our meaning is simply given. We are held and loved eternally and cannot be lost. And it's the felt experience of this profound acceptance and belovedness, this liberation from compulsive striving, this sense of being able to entrust ourselves wholly to the goodness of God that gives rise to radical new possibilities for being. So if we take that seriously then, there are two key features of Christian virtue, what's understood by virtue in the Christian tradition that are discernible in the light of this experience. The first is that what counts as virtue is, is, is derived directly from Jesus' way of being. To be virtuous is to be as Jesus was. And to be this way is what allows for our own deepening receptivity and participation in the life of God. And the second feature is that the power to be virtuous in this way is not primarily a matter of will. Christian virtue is the natural outworking in us of God's grace. It's who we can expect to become as our faith and self-entrustment deepen as we are liberated from compulsion and self-preoccupation and so come to share the mind of Christ. This doesn't mean there's no effort required on our part. We must still resist the lure of unreality 
selfishness, separation and the like. 1 Peter exhorts its readers to discipline yourselves and to rid yourselves of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy and all slander. But the letter also insists that there's a sense in which holiness of life is about participating in a goodness that is given rather than pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Discipline yourself, yes, and, the letter goes on, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. On this understanding, moral life shifts from a matter of primarily will-based muscular effort, which always has this risk of moralism. It shifts from that to being the fruit of a certain kind of receptivity. Thus, theologian David Ford notes the strange truth that on the Christian understanding, there is no direct way to goodness. We do not construct a good life by deciding to obey certain teachings, to follow our conscience, to stick to certain principles, to do our duty, to imitate good examples, or to develop virtues and good habits. There is something more fundamental than that sort of action. It is more like what he calls the active passivity of letting ourselves be embraced or letting ourselves be fed the food and drink that can energise us for virtue. Well, how all this really plays out, the difference it makes to our capacity to endure life's trials and act for the world's flourishing this is something I hope we'll see more fully in coming weeks. For now, though, let me touch on, on two more issues concerning our theme as a whole. The first is a question about what may seem an overly individualistic focus on the notion of personal virtue in this time of global crisis. Earlier, I outlined some of the systemic issues the current crisis is highlighting. I touched on the issue of structural injustice, and I had in mind such things as the chronic disadvantage of certain groups of people, the casualization of labor, and the desperate need that the whole earth has to reconnect with the living world. And I spoke of how the crisis may offer opportunities to engage these injustices in new ways. It might be argued, however, that if possibilities for transformation in these areas are actually to be realized, then what's needed is not a focus on individual virtue, so much as kind of much bigger picture things, the development of new economic models, social standards, environmental protections and the like. 
Well, I agree absolutely about the need for intelligent, informed and systems-wide political thinking to engage the crises of our time. Yet I think it's also true that the conversations and relationships, the choices and sacrifices that enable this kind of thinking to bear fruit will always at some level be personal and particular. Someone, some group has to take a stand for change and that takes courage. Someone has to persevere in the face of opposition and that takes patience, endurance, hope. Someone has to discern the timing of speech and silence and that takes wisdom. A friend of mine recently told of an incident where he realised his own responsibility for cultivating the conditions in which systemic or cultural change might unfold. He was with a bunch of blokes and the topic of the Me Too movement came up. Someone scoffed at one of the women who had made a complaint of sexual harassment on the grounds that, quote, she didn't complain at the time. In the context of this particular conversation, the comment could have seemed a minor matter, not worth making a fuss over. But to let it go, to let it become what my friend called part of the accepted furniture of the relationship would have been to allow not just an invalid inference to stand, it would have been to acquiesce in a kind of blokey, casual dismissal of what these women say. And so to allow a culture of almost unthinking sexism to continue unchecked. It's not that every such incident calls for direct engagement, for a direct counter, as my friend offered. And there's a question of wisdom here. But the point is that larger systemic change happens or not in the context of taken for granted assumptions amidst an ecology of social life. Every one of us is involved in making the social e ecology of our world more or less hospitable to truth and goodness and so to the well-being of all. It matters then that we are becoming those capable of responding well, whatever our sphere of influence, whatever the particularities of our vocations and stage of life. And this is the sense in which our personal growth in what I'm calling virtue is connected to the transformation of the whole. But this raises another question. The concern that this awareness of our responsibility for an ecology hospitable to the good, does this mean that we risk becoming somewhat holier than thou? 
those who are sure they know what's best for everyone else, those inclined to impose their values and beliefs on others. And this brings me then to the second issue concerning our theme as a whole. It's to do with what I will call the livingness of holiness. David Ford, again, has noted that every culture has a repertoire of wise sayings to help guide behaviour. The moral wisdom of a culture is often distilled into rules and lists of virtues. Lists, he says, are helpful ways of summing up the essentials, of examining ourselves and reminding ourselves of basic wisdom. In the Christian tradition, various lists have been developed, including the table of seven virtues and seven deadly sins, St Paul's list of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians, as well as implicit lists, such as can be derived from 1 Peter, which exhorts such qualities as hope, obedience, freedom, endurance, and humility. Well, there's nothing wrong with lists of virtue as reminders and rules of thumb. But the danger is that they can tend to get abstracted as the goal of our moral striving. They become ends in themselves. We think we know already what these virtues might look like in our lives or in the lives of others or how they might apply in particular situations. A consequence can be that such lists become means by which we judge others and ourselves. A further consequence is that our desire to be considered good people with reference to the list or the rules gets in the way of a truly faithful responsiveness. Shortly before New Year in 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a 15-page letter called After 10 Years. It was a reckoning addressed to his friends and comrades looking back on 10 years of Nazi rule in Germany. Bonhoeffer was reflecting about the resistance movement, the question of the usefulness of anything they had done and the way in which it had taken them far beyond their previous identities as law-abiding citizens and churchmen. He went on then to ask, who stands fast? Only the one whose ultimate standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, freedom or virtue, only the one who is prepared to sacrifice all of these when, in faith and in relationship to God alone, he is called to obedient and responsible action. Such a person is the responsible one, whose life is to be nothing but a response to God's question and call. 
who stands fast. Only the one whose life is to be nothing but a response to God's question and call. Timothy Radcliffe says that Christianity invites us to a share in God's own vitality. And that's what, on the Christian understanding, the life of virtue is. Not pious or static conformity to certain values, but a share in, a responsiveness to God's own life. This entails an inbuilt moral vulnerability, even risk. It's why, as Benedict said, discretion is the mother of the virtues. So two things follow from this. One is that if virtue is ultimately about obedience, deep listening to the living God, then the possibility of serving the world's good is intrinsically connected to prayer, to contemplation. It cannot be a matter of deciding in advance what the good is or what a good person must do, but of daring prayerfully to discern and respond to the particulars of our circumstances. And the second thing that follows is that deepening our capacity for this kind of holy living will mean discovering what these Christ-like habits of being feel like from the inside. There is, I think, a felt sense of Christian virtue, which is distinctive and which is emphatically not holier than thou or self-righteous. It's hard to characterise exactly, but it involves a quality of gift, even of wonder. And I wonder if you know this sense Almost like goodness is happening through you, but you have a sense of it not really being your possession. Perhaps it's taken the form of finding yourself being unexpectedly and surprisingly courageous. Maybe you hear yourself speaking at times boldly and directly and wonder that it's you. Perhaps you've had an experience of hope suddenly rising up in you against all reason and justification. Or you've discovered in yourself a new freedom to be. It's this felt quality, what might be called the phenomenology of Christian virtue that I'm particularly concerned to explore in these talks. The lived experience of being transformed by grace is part of what was cause for rejoicing and gratitude in the New Testament communities. 
And it was part of how this new quality of being empowered the early church and in its love and service of the world. Getting more fully in touch with this felt quality of being is, I sense, part of what might empower us as well. We are going, to put it mildly, through a difficult time. For some in our world, the suffering is acute, catastrophic. At the same time, we sense the possibility of a turning point in our common life. A sudden, unexpected opportunity for some kind of global reset of priorities, systems, solidarities. Pope Francis has recently described the present moment as a propitious time to be open to the spirit who can inspire us with a new imagination of what is possible. The spirit, he says, does not allow itself to be closed in or manipulated by fixed or outmoded methods or decadent structures, but rather moves us to make new things. It's no use being naive about it. There may be much suffering still to endure. Many of the old dynamics are likely to reassert themselves. Many of the old power structures will fight to remain intact. Even so, it seems an appropriate moment for us to become present again to the source and shape of Christian virtue, to be open to insights we may have lost sight of, and so to strengthen our capacity to be for the world's good. For as the great Jewish teacher, Hillel the Elder put it, if not now, then when? Great. Thank you, Sarah. You've launched us. It's going to be a wonderful, <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful exploration with you. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much. I think we've, we've got questions and comments coming in. Leo, can we, can, uh, are we going to present those to you now? Many, many thanks coming in on the screen, but uh, are, are there some questions that we can... We have yeah. one question in the, in the Q&A tab. Uh, okay. I don't know what Sarah, Sarah would like to read, if you click in Q&A. Yes. In fact, it's a, it's a question from right here in Canberra. Um, <laughs> Shireen, who's a member of Benedictus. <laughs> Hi, Shireen. She wasn't planted. She, no, she wasn't planted, no. <laughs> so she says, it's hard to see the kind of virtues Jesus embodied in a lot of Christian theology. Do you think the current crisis might have an effect on the prevalence of prosperity theology? 
Well, I read, uh, Neil and I read the other day of a um, story of a um, pastor in the US, one of these big kind of prosperity gospel-y type churches who was um, refusing to shut down services or social distance because, you know, God would look after them and he, you know, bound the power of evil, et cetera, et cetera, and, and uh, died last week of COVID-19 himself. Um, so <laughs> I did wonder whether that might have a bit of a, an effect <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on his community. <laughs> um, do I think the current crisis might have an effect? I guess, I guess the thing that's, that is we often stumble over, and I think a lot of theology stumbles over, is, is the point that I was trying to make at the end, and I, I don't know how well I made it, um, but this, this shift from, from moral life as being a kind of moralistic in some sense. So it being about me making sure I'm good so that, you know, and then I can tell whether you're good or you're not and whether you succeeded or not. And this kind of, so then the virtue, the lists of virtues, for example, or the rules being used in this, in this yardstick kind of way where and the real issue there is, is that the, the sense of my own virtue becomes a possession of mine. Like it's like I, an, an achievement and a possession. And what, I'm, what I think, what, what I was trying to get at with that notion of the livingness of holiness or the livingness of virtue, and I think what Bonhoeffer had to confront was all his achieved goodness, all the virtue that he thought he might have had, he kind of lost because he ended up compromised or having to make very morally ambiguous choices and came to that point where actually, actually the, the, the virtuous life isn't something we achieve or possess, it, it, it's, a, it's a lived responsiveness as best we can discern it um, to, you know, to the call of God. And that means we're at one level always morally vulnerable because we might be getting that wrong and we can't just, we can't just measure ourselves against the list. Um, and that, that place of moral vulnerability is a, you know, it's a, it's a difficult place to inhabit. Most of us like to think that we're basically doing okay, um, and that we, um, and I, but I, and I think that's the kind of dispossession and self-dispossession of that religious people particularly find really hard to to allow, which is why so much religion is just moralistic, or you know. So I, you know, there's a sense in which I don't. I mean, that just seems built in and I'm not sure that we're ever going <laughs> to just eradicate that. Um, but I guess the hope is that, but, but 
but part, often people have never even heard the alternative or they haven't heard, they haven't heard it expressed in a way that starts to get at what might the difference be so that they think being a Christian is just about being exceptionally good in a kind of moralistic way. So that I think we need to, I guess that's what I'm hoping to draw out a bit more, that, that difference. And then I think it's, it's, it's that kind of way of being which actually creates some space and some light and air where, where deeper change can happen. Um, that's the opportunity, I think. Sarah, can I, can I pick up, I think, a very important point you, you made, um, which I suspect will be a theme of the, of the talks, which is virtue is not will-based. Hmm. It's about a deep listening, a deep obedience, even as Bonhoeffer says, to the point of sacrificing your life, as, uh, as he did, literally. Um, hmm. And you link that immediately, uh, not just to some kind of heroic uh, spirituality or heroic, uh, but to a contemplative experience. You said that this, this moving from a will-based, you know, my strength of will type of virtue, moralistic, to the kind of virtue you're talking about, that the New Testament talks about, it involves us in a, in a contemplative orientation. And I think many people uh, with us uh, at this moment are, are building meditation, have built meditation into their daily lives. Many of them perhaps have tried to start doing that during this uh, time of confinement. And many of them may be struggling, you know, to, to, to meditate on their own or finding the value of meditating online. And that's what this website is, is, is meant to help people. But I wonder whether you could just explore a little bit, and maybe you'll be doing this in the future. Why, how does this experience of contemplation make us virtuous in this sense? And you linked it to a sign uh, that could appear in our self-knowledge, in our self-awareness, when we find ourselves, as you said, suddenly being more courageous than we thought we could ever be, or finding ourselves more hopeful uh, mm -hmm. in a situation where we would perhaps expect us, expect ourselves to feel uh, more desperate, more despairing, and yet, where does this hope come from? Mm. I, I wonder if, if you if you see a link between this this unselfconscious or unconscious being surprised by virtue with the practice of the contempt with with meditation with a contemplative practice. Mm. Mm. Well. I think it's connected, you know, David Ford, um, you know, he, he makes a similar point and he, he talks about the active passivity, which, you know, he doesn't use the word contemplation, but, you know, it's, it's that, that kind of, 
I take it that's sort of what he means, that kind of, um, it, it's a receptivity or a, or a kind of a, 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 um, an openness to, to something being given, but obviously there's a, there is an act, active part of that, which is we, we um, have the discipline to keep showing up for it, we try to stay awake, we, you know, all of the things that we know. But, but I, I think that where the connection is is that in what, what we think we're, um, what we're open to in that kind of contemplative um, active passivity um, or in that receptivity is, is the source, you know, is, is, is God. Um, that's what we're seeking to open become open to and more and more filled by, to use that kind of metaphor. Um, and, and then I really liked Timothy Radcliffe's phrase, a share in God's own vitality. So if part of what's happening is that we, we're starting to share in the vitality, you know, in the life of God, then, then these virtues kind of bubble up in us, which are actually... The you know which are actually kind of God's virtues. If you, I mean, it seems silly to talk about God's virtues, but you know, um, this is this. So so it's 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 the way of being that that is Christ's way of being, um, and that surprises us. Yeah. So so I guess I would see that the, the connecting link between that practice of contemplation and this kind of bubbling up in a way of a surprising virtue is that the contemplation is is connecting us more deeply to the source of that energy of of, of that reality and that's how it shows up in our life. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. There are a couple more questions um, here. Um, so, uh, oh gosh, lots of questions. Uh, <laughs> so one is, um, could you offer us an example of a Christian quality of being to help people discern what that might feel like? And I, And I guess that is what we were just talking about in a way. I think one of the... I do think an element of it is is that sense of a bit being a bit surprised or being having a bit of a sense that it, it's me and it's me being changed in a certain way, but it's also something that you don't necessarily feel um, like you want to pat yourself on the back for it. Like, oh, thank God, I'm now I'm now courageous. It's it is more like you you feel like you've received a gift. It's like, oh, now I'm, I'm, I find myself being this way and there's a, there is that gift quality to it rather than, um, rather than a, right, well, now I've done all the hard work and I'm, I'm good now and so I should get my reward. It doesn't have that feeling at all and, and hopefully perhaps we'll, that'll become clearer as we go. Um, Someone's written, Rosie's written, this response to the crisis is causing a lot of society to seek to blame 
being hopeful within the time of pandemic can seem naive. How can we counter this dynamic and show our hope to others? Tackle the dynamic of blame and be realistic about the pain, suffering and inequality e.g. of healthcare going on. I think that desire for blame, the desire for a scapegoat, um, you know, it's a very common response um, to a, such a stressful time. Again, I think countering that dynamic is, is to do with this being sourced in a, in a different reality. Um, and that's not always easy when we ourselves are stressed or, you know, people that we love suffer. Um, but it's this sense that the, the blame is, it feels like it's operating at the same level. It's, it's, it's a very reactive um, kind of thing and it's like I'm hurting and so somehow I need to, I need to discharge the hurt <laughs> by blaming somebody else. Like that's, that's, that's the level it operates. And hope in, that, in the, the deeper sense, not just I wish it weren't like this, but, but that kind of deeper hope that there could be there could be another movement going on here that we could be responsive to another movement is, is to do with our being connected into, you know, that, that other level. Um, and again, I think it's a gift. It, it, the experience of it is, is more like gift than it is like, I'm, I'm just deciding to be positive about this. It's, it's not that it's a, it's a hope comes out of an enlarged, an enlarged being, whereas blame comes out of a, you know, a kind of a, a small, diminished, um, reactive kind of being. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to the Contemplative Revolution podcast and listen to your favourite podcast app. In the media section of the WCCM website, wccm.org, you can also find a large amount of video and audio content on meditation. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to the Contemplative Revolution podcast and listen to your favorite podcast app. In the media section of the WCCM website, wccm.org, you can also find a large amount of video and audio content on meditation. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.